With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today, we're going to do a review of basic economics, not in some boring way, but there's some parts of economics concepts that are interesting to learn and practical and beneficial. And if you're going to do a side hustle, any of the side hustles that we've discussed over the past few months, it's good to know some concepts of basic economics. So I'm going to give, here's my idealist for the day. I'm holding up my waiter's pad and I'm going to give maybe 10 quick lessons from economics on everything from Warren Buffett, the economics of dating, the Paris Accord to the velocity of money and how that's affecting cities, Bitcoin versus gold, and a bunch of other topics. So if you're ready, here we go. First off, this is an interesting topic. I could probably just do a whole podcast just on this, but lesson number one, why is Warren Buffett rich? And a lot of people think Warren Buffett is rich because he's a great investor, and that's definitely true. But let's look at actually how Warren Buffett got rich. We're going to learn several interesting business models very quickly. So the first is Warren Buffett, when he was young in the 1950s, he started one of the first hedge funds. And so here's what a hedge fund is. Investors invest in a hedge fund. The hedge fund manager, in this case, Warren Buffett, invests it. And Warren Buffett would keep roughly 25% of the profits. So let's say someone invested a million dollars and Warren Buffett over two or three years, returned another million dollars. Like he had a million dollars, he invested it and doubled the money. And so he made a million dollars in profit. Warren Buffett would keep $250,000. So some of the biggest hedge funds, let's say they're $10 billion. If they're up 10% in a year, that means they made a billion dollars in profits. And the hedge fund manager would take home salary, $200 million. So, and then eventually more people put money in. Some people take money out and you build and grow the business if you have good returns. So Warren Buffett, when he started out, he had a small hedge fund. It's very interesting. He wanted to work for Benjamin Graham's hedge fund. Benjamin Graham was his mentor and the godfather of value investing. But Benjamin Graham would not hire Warren Buffett because as Benjamin Graham put it, Warren Buffett was not Jewish. And since many of the firms on Wall Street were not hiring Jews, Benjamin Graham made it a point to only hire Jews. So Warren Buffett said, 
screw this. I'm moving back to Omaha. And from his living room, he started his hedge fund. The important thing to know is he basically made 25% of all the profits that he earned on the amount he invested. That's how he made his first million dollars. One interesting thing from his hedge fund days, what kind of edge did Warren Buffett have? There were already starting to be hedge funds. There were already starting to be lots of investors. So Warren Buffett, let's say he found a good investment, but it would be really small. It would be some small stock that nobody even knew about. Let's say it was in some random town in Wyoming and it was, people forgot about it. It wasn't like some big company like Xerox or IBM or whatever. You know, I'm picking companies that were big in the fifties. Warren Buffett would go to the obscure town where this company was in. He put up signs all over the place and he would say, if anybody holds any shares of this company, I'll buy them. And he would usually buy them at a discount to where they were trading because there was no way for these people to sell their shares any other way. These were usually like employees or ex-employees of the company. That's how you'd buy stock. That was basically cheap. And he would wait for them to go up and then he would sell. So anyway, that's the hedge fund business model that made him his first million. But then he didn't quite like the hedge fund business model. You know, he didn't like the fact that people could take their money out. He didn't like the fact that he only made 25% of the profits. Warren Buffett's the kind of guy who likes to make 100% of the profits. So he switched business models or he started switching. He started to buy small banks, small regional banks, like a not a big bank, but a bank that might've served you know, Kansas City, he would buy that, the bank of Kansas City or whatever. So why go from a hedge fund to a bank? Well, in a hedge fund, people give you money and you take 25% of the profits and eventually they want their money back. In a bank, think about it. Here's the business model of a bank. People put money into the savings account. The The bank gives the, the people, I don't know, two, 3% a year, whatever the savings rate is, but they take the money that's in the savings account and they lend it out to people who are buying houses for five, six, 7% a year. I'm, t I'm making up numbers, but the numbers change every year. And then the bank keeps the difference. They're paying the people who put money into the savings account 2% a year, and they're making 6% a year on that money by lending it out for mortgages. So they make on all of their money, let's say a bank has a billion dollars, they're making that 4% difference between what they're lending out at for people to buy houses and what they're giving, you know, what interest they're giving to people who have savings accounts. So if they're making, if they're lending out at 6% and they're paying 2% interest, they're making 4% on a billion dollars that people have in savings accounts. That would be 40 million a year, just pure. And they keep a hundred percent of that. Now, Warren Buffett started to diversify away from hedge funds by buying up small banks, but then he figured, and that's, I gave you basically the simplest version on the business model of a bank. There's a, there's slightly more complicated versions, but let's just stick with that for a second. Then Warren Buffett decided he didn't even like that business model, which is a great business model, by the way, people get rich owning banks, but an even better one insurance. So Warren Buffett got into the insurance business because think about it. Once again, here's the business model. Once again, people give you money and then you invest it and you get, just like in a bank, you get to keep 100% of the profits, but this time nobody wants their money back. With a hedge fund, people eventually want their money back. With a bank, people put money in their savings account until they need to spend it and then they want their money back. Now with a bank, you keep 100% of the profits, but you, people could take the money out of the bank anytime. With an insurance company, 
people give money and you get to invest it and you keep 100% of the profits. And this time, nobody wants their money back. So let's say I'm paying $1,000 a month for catastrophic healthcare insurance. So I only get paid off by the insurance company if I have a catastrophe, like if I get hit by a car and I need a million dollars worth of healthcare, um, $1,000 a month buys me a million dollars worth of healthcare in a catastrophe. Well, I never want that money. Take my $1,000, I'm insured, good luck to me, but I never want that money back because that means I would have been in a catastrophe. So Warren Buffett loves this model because not only do people not want their money back, but he can also delay giving their money back. Like, oh, we have to investigate. And that could stretch out the amount of time he gets to use the money. He gets to use the money for, it's regulated, but he gets to use the money for, you know, he buys businesses with it. He buys hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of investments and businesses with the money that people give him for insurance. And he keeps 100% of the profits and he holds on to the money for much longer than a bank or a hedge fund. So right there, an insurance company is basically like one giant hedge fund, except you get 100% of the profits and nobody wants their money back. So I just explained insurance companies, banks, hedge funds, and how Warren Buffett got rich. The bulk of his money comes from running an insurance business. And there's more to it. Like sometimes you lose money on the insurance side, but you still make money on the investing side, but that's neither here nor there. Now, lesson number two, rent control and rent stabilization ruins cities. So here's what rent control is. Back in, I don't know when it started. Let's say in New York City, it started in the 70s, early 70s or 60s. If someone moved into an apartment that was rent controlled, the landlord could never really make the rent go higher. So a lot of times if you're paying $2,000 a month rent, maybe next year it's $2,500. And the year after that, it's $3,500 a month rent. Well, if you got into an apartment in New York City that has rent control, then I'll give you an example. In my apartment building in New York City, uh, one of my neighbors, I'm, I've never seen her there, but I'm told she's there. One of my neighbors is Cindy Lauper, the singer. She moved in very early on. She got a rent controlled apartment. She is paying for, and again, I don't know this for sure, but this is what I've been told. She has a five bedroom apartment. Now, just so you know, a five-bedroom apartment in New York City, I've never even seen such a thing, but that would normally go for between thirty dollars and $40,000 a month rent. Cindy Lauper, because she's in a rent-controlled apartment, is paying $1,000 a month rent. And people love their rent-controlled apartments for obvious reasons. In fact, sometimes they even try to figure out how in between generations people can inherit the rent-controlled apartments, but that's a whole messy set of laws. Here's the thing. Everyone says, oh, rent control is good for a city so the artists don't have to, they don't get their rent hiked so the artists could live there, blah, blah, blah. Artists have been living in the same apartment since the 70s. It's good for the artistic scene, blah, blah, blah. I think that is total BS. Here's the problem. Price is a function of supply and demand. If there's a lot of demand to live in New York City, price will go up or... Sometimes if demand stays the same, price goes up if supply is removed. Well, when you have apartments with rent control, there's less supply because no one is ever, once someone moves out of an apartment with rent control, the landlord can put the prices up to the regular everyday price. If Cindy Lauper ever moved out of her apartment, 
her apartment will go from 1000 a month to 40000 a month. The landlord would be having a party because he would make so much money. Nobody ever leaves rent-controlled apartments, so that reduces the supply of apartments, which makes the prices of all the other apartments in the city so large. So people think, oh, New York City is expensive because so many rich people move to New York City. That is actually not the reason why, I mean, it maybe is a little bit of the reason why New York City is expensive, but a lot of people who are middle class or don't have that much money also move to New York City because they get, they're young and they graduate college and they get a job there. So they have to move to New York City or a surrounding city or town. There's actually a lot of people who would benefit if there was no rent control because prices of all apartments would go down. The reason prices got so expensive in New York City is because a huge, I think it's like 30% or more of the apartments in New York City are under rent control. Get rid of rent control, New York City apartment prices would plummet. That's an economics lesson about rent control and you learn a little about supply and demand. I wanna talk about the Paris Accords for a second and the economics of the Paris Accord. So the lesson here is, is that not everything is as it seems. And this is not a Trump or Biden thing like, and it's not even a climate change issue. So the U.S., should it be in the Paris Accords or not? And the Paris Accords is this treaty that a lot of countries signed that basically said we have to, each country agreed to reduce a certain amount of emissions and donate some money towards this cause. Now, China was given a 10-year pass because, as they said, they are still a developing country, so they don't have to pay fees or reduce carbon emissions for 10 years. Now, what is really going on here? The reality is, why was China given a pass? And does the U.S. not care about climate change if they leave the Paris Accords? First off, reducing carbon emissions being of benefit to climate change does not occur because the government says, oh, we need to reduce carbon emissions. Technology in general reduces the chance of global warming, climate change, whatever. So take batteries as an example. The stronger batteries are, the more an electric car can drive without needing to be charged. The less an electric car is charged, the less fossil fuels it uses because it ultimately is charged from the electric grid, which uses fossil fuels. But battery life is doubling every year or so. And so Tesla used to only go 20 miles before it needed a charge. Now it can go 100 miles before needing a charge. Technology in general is gonna solve climate change. And there's a lot of examples of this. I'll argue it at some other point. In fact, Peter Diamandis and I spoke about it last week on the Abundance podcast we did. But the proof, though, is in the facts. So the United States is the country that is the world's largest reducer of carbon emissions, even though we left the Paris Accords. So we actually are the best on the planet for reducing carbon emissions. China is the worst. But what's really happening here? Why do we give China a pass? Again, follow the money. This is why it's an economics question and not a science question. China makes all of our stuff. In January, when Wuhan started to close and, and Shanghai started to close and all of China began to close down, suddenly every single company ranging from Apple computer, you know, Apple couldn't get their iPhones, pharmaceutical companies couldn't get drugs, clothing companies couldn't get clothes made. Every, it turned out everything was made in China. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's much cheaper to make things in China. Why are things cheaper? It's because China is the biggest polluter. They don't care about pollution. So they don't spend the extra money 
it takes to make sure factories don't emit carbon emissions and so on. So we want China to have a pass because for the next 10 years, the United States is still getting, you know, iPhones for less than $1,000 using factories that are polluting the environment and essentially slave labor where people are killing themselves. So we're like, okay, let's all hide this inside this big climate change agreement. Like, oh, we're doing such a great thing for China. But the real thing is just we want to get our iPhones cheap. So if you really want to reduce climate change, tell companies to stop relying on China for manufacturing. The only problem then is you're going to pay $3,000 for an iPhone instead of $1,000. You decide. But anybody who's really serious about climate change, you got to know the real truth before you start having opinions about these things. Now, dating. I think the value of a relationship has gone down because of online dating. Let me see something for a second. I'm going to Google average age people get married. You know what? I just wrote average age and then the letter P and it filled out. People get married. Does Google listen to me talk? So the average age of marriage. So in 1960, for men, it was about a little over 22. And for women, it was a little over 20. And now in 2020, the average age for a man is 30. And the average age for a woman is 28. It's gone up almost every single year, particularly since 1990, particularly since the, the web started. I think this is happening, again, because of supply and demand. Before the internet, if you were living in a small town, everybody has the same demand for marriage. Like everybody between 20 and 40 or 20 and 50, they eventually, most people want to get married, some percentage, and it probably stays the same. But in 1960, if you lived in a small town, your choices were only the people you lived near or who you worked with. And that was your whole choice. So your choices were limited. So people would basically lock down a marriage. They would value a relationship much more because you might not have so much potential to have many relationships. So you would value a relationship much more and that would evolve into marriage much more quickly. But now, ever since Match.com in the 90s and the 00s and then Tinder and and all of those mobile dating sites, the demand is the same, but supply is infinite. I know people who go on two dates a day, seven dates a week. They're like addicted. So, and supply in cities and even in the suburbs is almost infinite using Tinder. So when supply is huge and demand remains the same, the value, not price, but the value of that people place on a relationship goes down. So people are no longer as interested in having a relationship. I know many guys who just say, oh, I'm just dating around or women too. I'm just dating around. They're not looking for a relationship the way people used to even 20 or 30 years ago. Whenever the supply and demand equation changes, which it has with apps like Tinder, then the value of a relationship goes down. And I believe this is one of the reasons why the average age people are getting married is going up. Now people are saying, oh no, people are more focused on their careers, blah, blah, blah. No, they're not. They're not any more focused on their careers than they were 20 years ago. They simply have more choices now. So, and, and supply has gone up. Value and price are always based on supply and demand. So almost every aspect of life is based on supply and demand. If you're at a party and people want to talk to you and you don't engage in small talk, the value of your words will go up. People will have the demand for your words, but you'll keep supply down. And whenever you do talk, people will listen. I'm making that up. Maybe that's not true. Maybe nobody wants to listen to you, 
but it could be true. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. 
men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Why isn't there inflation right now? So right now, we just did a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. And that means a lot of extra money is in the economy this year. And now some money is not in the economy because of the economic lockdowns, but some money was printed and put into the economy. I remember talking to John McAfee, who is batshit crazy. I was talking to him on this podcast about four or five months ago. And he said, mark my words, by August, the US will be a third world country because the value of the dollar will fall apart because so much money was printed. I was skeptical then and I am skeptical now because it didn't even happen. But why wasn't there inflation? So again, the demand for the dollar is the same, but the supply of dollars went up because the Federal Reserve and the Congress printed up so much money. So there was many more dollars in the United States. So why didn't the value of the dollar go down, which would just trust me on this, would create inflation. Because if a hamburger previously cost a dollar, if the value of the dollar gets cut in half, then a hamburger would cost $2. So the price would inflate. So in fact, there's deflation right now. And so why is that happening? It's because even though the supply has gone up, demand for the dollar has gone up. What that means is people from every other country they're afraid of their own currency collapsing because of the economic lockdowns. So they're trying to be safe by buying more dollars. In Europe, people don't want to hold on to the euro. They're afraid that the Southern European countries, the economies will collapse and the euro will fall apart. So people are getting dollars. In China, wealthy people are getting dollars. In South America, wealthy people are getting out of like the Argentinian peso and getting dollars. So there's so many people buying dollars that the Federal Reserve literally can't print money fast enough. They would love to have inflation right now, but they can't get it. 
And so when everyone says, oh, the dollar is going to be a worthless piece of paper, we're printing up too much money, that's wrong because there's so much demand for the dollar that the value of the dollar keeps high, which means the real worry is deflation, that prices will go down, which believe it or not is a worry, but that's another economics lesson. So what's another thing I have here? Um, Oh, this one's an interesting one because this explains a lot of things. This explains why taxes are not a good thing. And I'm not saying this, I don't care if the tax rate's 25% or 30% or 35%, doesn't matter. But here's what happens. A dollar bill is either owned by the government or it's owned by an individual or company. It's in the private sector instead of the public sector. So when you're paid, the listener, when you're paid a dollar bill, you take that dollar bill and you go across the street and you buy a newspaper from the newspaper guy. The newspaper guy takes that dollar bill and he buys a cup of coffee. The coffee guy, he goes to the flower store, buys a flower. The flower guy goes back to the newspaper guy and uh, buys some bubble gum and, and so on. So $1, in that example, $1 created $5 of prosperity for that local community. And so if there's a trillion dollars of stimulus, that doesn't equal an extra trillion dollars to the economy. That might equal $5 trillion to the economy. But here's what's interesting. The velocity of money, so the velocity of money in the example I gave where it went to five different places was five. The velocity of money right now is almost zero because if I get paid a dollar bill, instead of going out to the newspaper guy, I go on Amazon. So the money goes from me, the dollar goes to Amazon, and then Amazon just puts it in the bank. And so the velocity of money then is call it one, but actually in your local community, I used to go across the street to the bookstore, or I used to go to the diner to buy a sandwich, or I used to go to the flower store, buy a flower, or I used to go to the clothing store, buy clothing. Now I just go to Amazon. So here's why this is important. The velocity of money nationwide is down, which is another reason why the supply of money is not as high as people thought it would be with all this stimulus. But here's the critical thing. Cities are being crushed, like New York City, San Francisco, LA. Cities are being crushed because of the addiction to Amazon. So Amazon is making sure the velocity of money in your town is going to zero. Because as soon as I get paid, I spend it on Amazon. That's the average person. As soon as they get paid, they spend it on Amazon. And so when the velocity of money in your town is zero or when you're in your city is zero, your city makes much less money in taxes, which means it can't pay for basic services like garbage collection, teaching, healthcare, police, transit, like subways and buses. That makes it less desirable to move to your city and more people move away from the city, which means less taxes get paid in the city. And so because of the lockdowns combined with our addiction to Amazon, the velocity of money in a city, in a local area has gone to almost zero and that's critically affecting cities. So if you want to help cities, you have to come up with solutions for how to keep money in a city. So one idea I've been thinking of is what I call negative sales taxes. So basically when you spend in a local store, as opposed to Amazon, maybe you get some kind of coupons that you can either spend again in local stores or in 10 years, they can get redeemed one for one for dollars. Like I called it uh, New York city bucks or city bucks that will 
increase the velocity of money in a local area. People don't realize this. In every city in the United States right now, the velocity of money is almost zero. Normally it's five to 10 and we need to increase it back to five to 10 or else cities are in deep trouble. Now, here's an interesting little thing. In many cities, you have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, and you might have Hispanic neighborhoods and Chinatown and little India and little Korea. And in, in New York City, there's all these segregated areas. So it turns out that the velocity of money is always almost zero in a black community. And this is a problem because when someone in that community gets paid money, they might go to the laundromat or the deli and spend money there. Well, those are owned by people who live in other areas. Like this is a stereotype, but the Chinese guy might own the laundromat, the Korean guy might own the deli, and then they go home at the end of the day and spend money in Koreatown or wherever they live. So one way to improve the prosperity of the black community is not just to simply give them money, but give incentives for people who live in the black community to start local businesses in the black community. There should be um, maybe more banks and more loans made for businesses in the black community. Now, it's hard to regulate that. Whenever you have regulations, bad things can occur. And I'll give you an example. Here's the next economic lesson. This is a very important one. This lesson is that good intentions often lead to very bad results when economics are involved. And this is a very important lesson. Let's look at the Great Recession in 2008. Why did the Great Recession occur? If I ask that for anybody, they'll say, oh, because there was a housing bubble, people bought, paid a lot of money for houses, and then the price of houses collapsed. That is not the reason why the Great Recession occurred. It's part of it, but not really. It's the tail end. Here's what happened. There was good intentions. So I think it was around 1995 or 96, Bill Clinton had a very good idea, which is that he wanted banks to have a quota, a minimum number of subprime loans that they would give. Why did he want this? Well, there's a good reason and a real reason. The good reason is, is that he felt, you know, minorities and people who were in the bottom third of income should have more opportunities to buy houses because buying a house is considered the American dream. Now, the real reason I suspect is that the government makes money when people buy houses because the government, like there's companies like Fannie Mae, the government lends money out to homeowners. That's a simplistic way of putting it. Government makes some money. It's a huge industry when more people buy homes. There's a lot of reasons, but I suspect there's a good reason and a real reason. But the good reason is still a good reason. It's assumed that owning a home is the American dream, which I think is a lie, but you know some people believe that. So banks started lending more money to people they never normally would have lent money to before, people who didn't have the best credit ratings. And so these were called subprime loans. Now, people were investing in those loans and often they were borrowing a lot of money to invest in those loans because housing defaults are very small in general. Throughout the past 200 years, housing defaults have been very small, but they didn't take into account that the subprime mortgages now were made up of a different category of credit rating. The people who were subprime had a much lower credit rating than ever before. There was a lot of other things that happened, the way the banks valued these things, but essentially, Everybody who was doing economic modeling of the past 100 years of housing defaults, they were not taking into account the basic statistic that 
the government was forcing, was regulating with good intentions. They were regulating subprime loans to be lower quality. And without taking that into account, everybody lost on their investments. And that began the Great Recession. I'm simplifying it a little bit, but my point is good intentions often lead to bad results. Another example, in the 1960s, Lyndon B. Johnson passed all sorts of laws saying that the government will back student loans. The government will basically lend money to students so they can get a college degree. What happened ever since then? Well, before then, tuitions were kind of going up with inflation. It was almost flat. Since Lyndon Baines Johnson started using the government to lend money to students, college tuition has gone up 10 times faster than inflation. Healthcare, by the way, has only gone up three times faster than inflation since the 1960s. So tuition has been the worst thing possible vis-a-vis inflation since the government started uh, lending money. Not only that, tuitions have gone up faster than inflation every single year, every single year. It's not on average. They've gone up faster than inflation every single year for the past 50 years, ever since these laws were passed. Not only that, College presidents' salaries have gone up. Like the president of Quinnipiac College makes over $3 million a year. They probably have remote learning now and he's still making $3 million a year. So again, good intentions. Let's get everybody through college. Bad results. 44 million Americans right now are carrying student loan debt. Student loan debt has gone from $100 billion 20 years ago to $1.6 trillion. An entire generation of kids now can't be entrepreneurs because they have to immediately start paying down their debt. So these are just examples. Whenever you government messes with things, this is why I get sometimes upset. Not, this is not a Democrat or Republican thing, but sometimes when someone says, oh, let's just pay for everybody's, I don't know, whatever, college education, you're only benefiting a percentage of society and you're leaving out uh, large percentages of society. And you're going to create what's called a moral hazard. Colleges are going to keep on raising tuition. The government is going to keep on loaning money. And kids, 18-year-olds, they don't have their prefrontal cortex fully evolved until they're about 25. College kids, they're not able to assess risk as well. So they, oh, I'll borrow a quarter million dollars, even though I'm only 18 years old, and they get into more and more debt. So again, good intentions combined with basic economics equals bad results, equals the Great Recession, equals uh, student loan debt of $1.6 trillion. And perhaps if we do another one of these, I'll explain how the Great Depression started, which was also good intentions leading to bad results, very bad results, which made the Great Depression, it, it turned a depression, which is bad enough, into the Great Depression, which lasted 11 years. So how about we do Bitcoin versus gold. Some people ask me, should I get gold as a hedge? Should I get Bitcoin as a hedge? I'm not gonna recommend anything right here, but let me just say, gold has never been a hedge versus inflation. Gold is completely uncorrelated with anything else. Gold is just a rock. Like if you, if the banking system collapses, you might say to yourself, oh, good thing I own a lot of gold. Oh yeah, where's your gold? Well, you probably don't own real gold. You probably own like, gold futures or gold stocks or something like that. But if the whole system collapses, good luck cashing out on your gold futures or gold stocks or whatever. And unless you have, let's say you're, you're saving all your money and you have it buried in your backyard, how are you going to carry 400 ounces of gold around with you? 
And I challenge anyone to find any place in the country where gold can buy anything. So what is gold actually used for? I have no idea. Gold to me is having a quiet death right now. Bitcoin, which in May, 2013, I went on CNBC to talk about Bitcoin when it was at $61. Of course, in 2017, I started a Bitcoin newsletter and I went on CNBC again when Bitcoin was at 3,500. Now it's, I don't know wherever it's at, but at the beginning of this pandemic, what I was hearing from a lot of big Bitcoin people is that because Bitcoin is completely disconnected from the banking system, it was a much better hedge for people just in case the whole system collapsed. So that's why so much money went into Bitcoin and is staying in Bitcoin. You have companies like Twitter and MicroStrategy now basically putting all of their extra cash into Bitcoin. So it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And so Bitcoin's here to stay. The Winklevoss twins recently put out a, a paper. I think they predicted a half a million dollar price for Bitcoin. Citigroup just predicted a $300,000 price for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's here to stay and uh, it's probably gonna keep going up. What about all the other coins? I have no clue, but I always like Bitcoin. I think for economic lessons, that's all for today. But if you have any other questions, feel free to tweet them or email me at altachurchgmail.com. And if you like this episode, leave a good review at Apple Podcasts. It really helps me. If you like these types of educational episodes, let me know and I'll do more economics ones. And next week we have a really good Side Hustle Friday coming to you and I will see you then.